Let's open the Bible together to Psalm 86. Psalm 86. Bow down thine ear, O Lord, and hear, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my soul, for I am holy. O thou my God, save thy servant that trusteth in thee. Be merciful unto me, O Lord, for I cry unto thee daily. Rejoice the soul of thy servant, for unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For thou, Lord, art good, and ready to forgive, and plenteous in mercy unto all them that call upon thee. Give ear, O Lord, unto my prayer, and attend to the voice of my supplications. In the day of my trouble I will call upon thee, for thou wilt answer me. Among the gods there is none like unto thee, O Lord, neither are there any works like unto thy works. All nations whom thou hast made shall come and worship before thee, O Lord, and shall glorify thy name. For thou art great, and doest wondrous things, thou art God alone. Teach me thy way, O Lord, I will walk in thy truth. Unite my heart to fear thy name. I will praise thee, O Lord my God, with all my heart, and I will glorify thy name forevermore. For great is thy mercy toward me, and thou hast delivered my soul from the lowest hell. O God, the proud are risen against me, and the assemblies of violent men have sought after my soul, and have not set thee before them. But thou, O Lord, art a God, full of compassion, and gracious, long-suffering, and plenteous in mercy and truth. O turn unto me, and have mercy upon me. Give thy strength unto thy servant, and save the son of thine handmaid. Show me a token for good, that they which hate me may see it, and be ashamed, because thou, Lord, hast holpen me, and comforted me. Here we end our reading in the Holy Scriptures. On the foundation of God's word, The Heidelberg Catechism explains to us the third commandment in Lord's Days 36 and 37. And we'll treat both of those Lord's Days together this morning. So let's read the Catechism's instruction beginning at question and answer 99. What is required in the third commandment? That we, not only by cursing or perjury, but also by rash swearing, must not profane or abuse the name of God, nor by silence or connivance be partakers of these horrible sins in others. And briefly, that we use the holy name of God no otherwise than with fear and reverence, so that he may be rightly confessed and worshipped by us, and be glorified in all our words and works. Is then the profaning of God's name by swearing and cursing so heinous a sin that his wrath is kindled against those who do not endeavor, as much as in them lies, to prevent and forbid such cursing and swearing? It undoubtedly is, for there is no sin greater or more provoking to God than the profaning of his name, and therefore he has commanded this sin to be punished with death. May we then swear religiously by the name of God. Yes, either when the magistrates demand it of the subjects, 
or when necessity requires us thereby to confirm fidelity and truth to the glory of God and the safety of our neighbor. For such an oath is founded on God's word and therefore was justly used by the saints both in the Old and New Testament. May we also swear by saints or any other creatures? No. For a lawful oath is calling upon God as the only one who knows the heart, that he will bear witness to the truth and punish me if I swear falsely. Which honor is due to no creature? What is the significance of a person's name? You can think about and answer that question personally. What is so important about your name? Certainly all of us take our own names seriously. They're important to us. Name is something that's very important. That's why one of the very first things that is done when a child comes into the world is that child is given a name. Because that name is going to stand for them. It's going to stand for their person. That name is what they will be known by. That name is what they will be called. How people will refer to them, speak to them, speak about them. Names are important. Perhaps in your family or among your close circle of friends, you have a nickname. Something that you're called and there's... Affection, there's a certain warmth conveyed by that name which is used just in your inner circle of friends and family. Name is is something very, very important. And we feel that also when someone speaks evil of our name. It hurts me personally because my name stands for me and whatever is said about my name or to me through my name, if it is unkind, if it is harsh, it strikes me personally. Our names are important. And when we think about how important our own names are to us, then we can readily understand why God is concerned with his name. And why it is no surprise then, but completely fitting, that one of the Ten Commandments should be devoted to God's will for how we, his people, we, his children, use his name. There's even more significance in God's name than there is in our names. Our names are important, and that's not to be minimized, but our names, they are a kind of verbal sign that is used to distinguish us from other persons, but our names don't reveal anything about our character, our personality. If, whether your name is Sarah or Samuel, just knowing that name doesn't tell anyone else about who you are. They have to get to know the person who bears that name. But with God, his names are not given by anyone else, but his names are given by himself as an act of self-revelation to us. His names tell us about him. His names show us precisely who he is. And so the name God, or the name Almighty conveys to us that he is the one who possesses all power. The name Jehovah reveals the unchanging character of God, especially as our covenant God, whose love, grace, and mercy, and faithfulness never change. God's names tell us who he is, what he is like. They reveal his character. And so God's name is very important. 
what's said of God's name is said of God himself. And what is done in God's name is done unto God himself. And because God is who God is, as described in this psalm, the one only God who is great, who doest wondrous things, because God is God, high and lifted up, so ought his name to be high and lifted up. And part of the Christian life is doing just that. Lifting up in joyful praise, in reverent adoration, the name of God. and The name of our blessed Savior Jesus Christ. Who summarized the first great commandment this way. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Part of that love is how we use the name of our beloved Father. So that's what we're going to think about for a little while this morning. Drawing from the scriptures as our foundation and using the tool of the Heidelberg Catechism which clearly explains the Bible's teaching about our calling with regard to God's name. And our calling is simply this. Honor God's name. That's our theme, honoring God's name. And we're going to look at the two main ways that we are called to honor God's name. First, in word, in our speech. And secondly, in deed, in all that we do. Really all of life. God's name is not honored by avoiding its use. God's name is not honored by being so scared of the possibility of misusing his name that we never use it. That's not the case. And that's not what the third commandment intends to teach. We are to use God's name. That's why God reveals himself in the scriptures giving us not only one name but a whole host of names. He gives us these names so that by them we may know him. And knowing him may use them to speak to him. To address him in prayer. To fellowship with him. Just like in your inner circle of family and friends. You use one another's names in a loving way. It's part of fellowship. So it is with the Christian and his God. God's names are given to us to use. To worship him and to commune with him. We're not to avoid God's names. But we are to use them. But now we are to use them as the catechism explains In question and answer 99, no otherwise than with fear and reverence. Now children, understand that when the Bible speaks about the fear of God, it doesn't mean being scared of God. Fear refers to respect and a certain trembling because God is so great and so much higher than we are. We are to respect Him and stand in awe before Him. But it doesn't mean we hide from Him because we're scared to death of Him. That's not the idea. Fear and reverence. A reverent, respectful, loving adoration. That's what's being talked about here. We are to use God's name no otherwise than with fear and reverence so that, we may, so that He may be Rightly confessed and worshipped by us. There's how we use his name. 
and be glorified in all our words and works. And there you see the two points of the sermon. In all our words and works. So let's, let's look first at the basic meaning of the language of the third commandment. The, the very words that God used and inscribed on those tables of stone. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. You can read those words this way. Don't lift God's name up to emptiness. That's what vain means. It means empty. To put it another way, don't take God's name and empty, of, empty it of its glory. If you think of God's name as a cup full to the brim with all that is glorious, all that is beautiful, because He is the Holy One, the perfect God. Don't use God's name in any way that tips that cup even the slightest so that some of its glorious contents spills out on the ground. Don't empty God's name of its worth. So whenever you use God's name, use it in a manner that is worthy of the God who is of supreme worth. Don't use it lightly. Don't treat his name disrespectfully. But always speak to God and speak about God in a way and with words that befit who he is. Look at God through the eyes of Isaiah for a moment. In, in Isaiah 6 verse 1 where Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and His train filled the temple. That's God, high, lifted up, glorious, majestic. We ought to lift up His name, and not pull His name down any lower than He is. Lift up His name, in your heart, in your mind, in your thinking, on your tongue, with your words. Another illustration to help us understand that. Think of someone that you really care for. Someone that you love. Someone that you're close to. Isn't it the case that we, we shrink from the very thought of saying something unkind, harsh, or derogatory about them? Isn't it true that very quickly our, our hearts fill with a, a defensive spirit? If we hear that person we love and care about being unjustly criticized or spoken evil of, of course we do. We hold up their name. Now, if God is God, and God is first, and God is the greatest in our life, how much more ought God's name to be on the pedestal in our hearts so that in our minds, and the way we think, and in our words, the way we talk, God's name lifted up. That's the third commandment. And so, the, the third commandment forbids any kind of use of God's name, speech to God or speech about God that would tip that cup, empty God's name in some way, shape, or form of the glory that it's due. And so let's quickly go through a few of the things that the Catechism mentions. It forbids us to profane or abuse the name of God in our words, by silence, by connivance, by cursing. That's the first thing that's brought up. And cursing here is, means much more than using coarse language that might not be fitting for a Christian to use. But 
Cursing here is especially speech that degrades God, that uses God's name or God's works or God's attributes as a kind of vehicle to vent my sinful emotions. That's why Christians should refrain from using so many of the curse words common in our day. We know them well because it's hard not to hear them in the world in which we live. But for the Christian, because we hold up God's name and want to give it the glory that it's due, that means we don't want to use that blessed, beautiful name of God as a vehicle to vent my surprise or to express my disgust. No, God's name belongs up here. It's not to be treated as something down here to vent my emotions with. Cursing can also refer to calling upon God to bring down evil upon another person. And that's not a proper use of God's name either because it rejects God's word that vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, and instead tries to enlist God as the agent of my personal revenge. Now let's understand that's different than a proper biblical longing for justice and for the thwarting of evil devices and plots. There are many such cries in the Bible. In fact, the first Psalter number that we sang, a versification of Psalm 5, contained such a prayer for the undoing of the wicked's devices and the holding of wicked men accountable before the judgment seat of God. That's that's not wrong. But cursing is in a fit of rage Asking God to get revenge for me. To settle the scores for me. And we're not to use God's name that way. Or to treat God as our personal avenger. To settle our personal grudges. An extreme form of cursing that the catechism brings up is blasphemy. Blasphemy is simply directly reviling God, His character, or His works in our words or actions. Just ascribing evil directly to God, raging against Him, carrying myself towards Him as if I am not the sinner, but He is the sinner who is doing me wrong. But here again, we must understand that that's something different than wrestling with God or struggling with his ways. Blasphemy is an outburst of hatred in speech or action directed towards God, towards his name. But that's very different than someone who's wrestling with questions about God's way with him. Wrestling with God the way Jacob wrestled with God or the way Asaph wrestled with God. We get a window into Asaph's troubled heart, for example, in Psalm 73, verses 12 and 13, where Asaph says, Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. He he looks out at the ungodly and he sees them prospering. It looks like their life is great and he feels deep in his heart, this is so unfair. Why does God do this? Why does God let this happen? So much so that he starts to think, maybe a godly life, a life of holiness, a life of obedience to God's word just isn't worth it. He says in verse 13, Verily I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. There we see a struggling saint wrestling with God's ways, wrestling with God's word, struggling with the infirmity of his faith. And that's something entirely different than blaspheming God or ascribing evil to God. 
Here we remember the text that we looked at last Sunday morning, that God knows our hearts, He knows our frame, He remembers that we are dust, and He has compassion upon the struggling child of His. That's why there's scripture passages like that passage in Psalm 73 in the Bible to show us the openness and the honesty of heart that we can have and ought to have with God. The openness and the honesty to bear our hearts and emotions that we enjoy in an inner circle of family and friends. We have that even more so with God. So while the third commandment teaches us, honor God, lift, it, lift up His name upon the pedestal of your heart, use your words to magnify His name, let's understand that that doesn't mean a Christian may never struggle, wrestle with God's word or ways. That happens. Thanks be to God that the glorious God upon the throne is our Father as described in this psalm, Psalm 86. For thou, Lord, art good and ready to forgive, plenteous in mercy unto all them that call upon Him, who attends to the voice of our supplications, who will answer me in the day of trouble. And that above all is the reason why among the gods there is none like unto thee, O Lord, neither are there any works like unto thy works. Often it is that when God leads his child through a valley of sorrow, that valley is the way that God leads that child unto the greater praise and magnification of his name. The Catechism points out now that how we use God's name is a serious matter. It is a serious matter because, our, because God's name is important. And that's why, that's why the Catechism also mentions the fact that we are to be careful not only in the way we use our words, but we need to be careful that we not give silent assent or connive in the misusing of God's name. And conniving means participating in a, in a more subtle way. As Christians, we shouldn't go along with the misuse of God's name or egg it on in any way. Because we love our God and we hold His name high in our hearts. And so it should go without saying that cursing, blasphemy, Frivolous speech about God should be unwelcome in our homes and in our social gatherings. The purpose of this application isn't to lay out a detailed list of rules for us, but simply to call us to Christian discernment. Mature Christian discernment. In our speech, in our gatherings, may it be that God's name is lifted up. May it be that we, we shrink from the thought of having some sort of fun at the expense of God's honor. Christian discernment. Christian discernment. 
Because God's name is serious, as was said a minute ago. And the Catechism emphasizes that in, in question and answer 100. And really what question and answer 100 is, is getting at is it's explaining the second part of the third commandment. The Lord will not hold him guiltless who taketh his name in vain. And really what that communicates to us is because God's name is so important to him. The misuse of his name isn't something that God just shrugs off. People are quick to do that. Very easily we might shrug it off or think no big deal, but God looks at it differently. And so the impenitent misuser of God's name, God will certainly punish. God will not hold him guiltless. And the child of God who persists in the misuse of God's divine name will earn himself stripes of chastening. The idea of that last part of the third commandment is not that Misusing God's name is an unforgivable sin and you're going to be auto-condemned should you misuse God's name at some point in your life. If that were the case, we'd all be lost because we all break these commandments so often and in so many ways in our lives. But the teaching of Answer 100 based on the second part of the third commandment is meant to press upon our hearts, this is serious. God takes it seriously and so Christians take it seriously Two. Question and answer 100 mentions the fact that in the Old Testament, God commanded that the gross misuses of his name, such as blatant cursing or blasphemy, should be punished by death. You can read about that in Leviticus 24. The Catechism isn't teaching that we should punish that sin with death today. That was part of the Old Testament dispensation of things. But the fact that God took it so seriously as to command the death penalty for gross forms of blasphemy in the Old Testament serves to underscore for us in the New Testament how seriously God takes his name. How seriously we should take the use of his name. And thus how much we need Jesus and the covering of his blood. And the gospel message for us as the third commandment comes and sets before us what God requires of us and at the same time shows us how far short we fall of God's glory, how far short we fall of hallowing his name the way we should. The gospel message is there is forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. The gospel message is that Jesus came into the world to die for misusers of God's name. For you and for me. And God did not hold him guiltless for your taking of his name in vain. So that in Christ, God does hold you guiltless. Your sins are covered, believer. Your sins are covered. And now that's not an excuse, may it never be used as an excuse to go on living in a careless way. But may that truth be a well of joy and thankfulness that leads to lifting God's name high on the pedestal of my heart more and more. Jesus Saves poor sinners, misusers of the divine name like you and me, like Paul. 
The Apostle Paul, who reflects on the wonder of the mercy he received in Christ, he says in 1 Timothy 1 verse 13, Me, who was a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. Thou, Lord, art good, ready to forgive, plenteous in mercy unto all that call upon thee. Well now, one more thing in connection with our words and God's name, and that's Lord's Day 37. One of the main topics that comes up in connection with the third commandment is the topic of swearing oaths, and the Catechism devotes a whole Lord's Day to the subject of oaths, For a couple of reasons. Number one, when an oath is sworn, God's name is invoked. And this is an important use of God's name when it is done. And secondly, at the time of the Catechism's writing in the Reformation era, there was a lot of debate swirling about the propriety of swearing an oath. And we don't need to get into that this morning, but for just a minute, reflect on what an oath is so that we can understand its connection to the third commandment. We don't swear oaths very often, and that's the way it should be. An oath is really a special use of God's name in a very specific circumstance. When when you swear an oath, what you're doing, as the last question and answer of Lord's Day 37 says, is you're calling upon God as the only one who knows the heart, that he will bear witness to the truth and punish me if I swear falsely. You're calling upon God to be your witness. You're appealing to the highest judge, the one who cannot lie, the one who is true, the one who perfectly knows the heart, and who therefore sees all dishonesty. You're appealing to him as the final court of appeals to verify that what you say is true, or that a commitment that you've made, you will hold to it and keep your word. That's what an oath is. An oath is to be used in certain circumstances where there is a need to verify and confirm as much as possible truth. The foremost example would be in a court case. When, there, when a court case is being heard and witnesses are called forward, everything must be done that can be done to ensure and to motivate that witness to speak the truth. And that's the purpose of an oath. Now, why is that brought up here? Because an oath, by definition, is calling upon God. He's the only one that can see the heart. He is the supreme judge to whom all people are accountable. He is the one who can see into the innermost recesses of the human heart and evaluate the words, the testimony that a person gives. We human beings can't do that. We can't see into the heart. Beyond that, by nature, we're dishonest and untruthful. And that's the reason why the oath is sometimes necessary in this world. In a perfect world and in the kingdom to come, the oath won't be necessary because men will be true inside and out. But that's not the case now as a fallen race, as fallen human beings. We, by nature, are liars. Twisters of the truth. And so at times, the taking of an oath is necessary. Calling upon God. To witness to the fact that what I say is true. And standing before his face and saying, I am speaking the truth. And if I am not, 
God will judge me for that. That's the oath. And so we see that when an oath is sworn in the right way, it honors God. Because it gives Him the status that He alone deserves as God. The all-knowing, the all-wise, the supreme judge. And that's why perjury, lying under oath, is a misuse of God's name. When, when a person lies under oath, what they're saying is, God bear witness to my lie. Or when a person swears rashly, for, for trivial reasons, it, it trivializes God's name. That's why it's good that oaths be taken in the right way and only in the right or the proper circumstances. And not used trivially. Because God is invoked and His name is honored. Well, to finish up the first point, a couple of applications. As we apply the third commandment to ourselves, let's make the focus ourselves. The focus shouldn't be on lamenting our society, how we can't get away from the fact that God's name is misused all around us. Yes, that's bad. And yes, that is a struggle of the Christian life, and parents know that so very well. How do we protect our children from hearing God's name being misused all over the place? But the third commandment needs to hit us between the eyes. How do we as Christians misuse God's name? And do we misuse God's name in more subtle ways? That maybe are less obvious to us. Or ways that we may be blind to. Obeying the third commandment is much more than having a laundry list of bad words that we avoid. Obeying the third commandment means sanctifying the name of God in my heart. Verse 11 of Psalm 86 is beautiful. Teach me thy way, O Lord. I will walk in thy truth. Unite my heart to fear thy name. There's the core of the third commandment. Unite my heart. That is, give my heart a unified focus and purpose to exalt and to glorify and to defend and to protect and to cherish the precious name of my God and my Savior Jesus Christ. Wholeheartedly. So that I hallow, as I sanctify, I set apart and set on high the name of God in my heart, in my thoughts, in my words. So that whenever I use God's name, it comes from that kind of heart. An attitude of adoration, respect, and love is infused into my every thought and word about the name of God. Unite my heart to fear thy name. That's, that's the third commandment. So, the, the specter of religious or spiritual formalism raises its ugly head here again, doesn't it? Easy religion often takes God's name in vain. 
routine, going through the motions thoughtlessly, doing it just because it's always been done that way without thinking beyond that, easily can lead us in that direction of misusing God's name. Our heart must be united to fear His name. And that attitude must infuse our worship, our religious exercises, our devotion. Spiritual formalism. That, that term form simply refers to a set way of doing things. And a form is not bad. In fact, formlessness leads to chaos, anarchy, and is not good or healthy. Form a set way of doing things in our spiritual life or in our worship, in our religion, it is good so long as it helps rather than hinders. And so long as the form is a means for the heart to express itself rather than an end in itself. Formalism is again lodging value in the outward manner in which a religious duty is performed rather than the heart behind it. And when that's done... God's name is not set on high. Formalism is a subtle way of taking God's name in vain. And it's easy to slip into because it's the path of least resistance in religion. It's easy religion. The hard work of the Christian faith is putting our hearts and minds into it. And using the good forms and the good set practices that we've been given consciously to glorify God. Rather than just going with the flow of things. So to give it a a concrete example to maybe help us understand this a little more. In prayer. What's our priority in prayer? The starting place is. Unite my heart. To fear and to adore the name of my God and Savior. The the priority shouldn't be simply using certain words or, or certain phrases. Or making sure we pray at certain times. Again, those forms are good. And they can help us. It's good to pray before our meals. Good to pray in the morning and before we go to bed at night. But the focus shouldn't be on just making sure we can check those boxes. That we did it at that time or said this thing. Whether our prayer is long or short, whether it's eloquent or simply the disorganized bubbling forth of the heart. What really counts is the heart united to fear God's name. That's what our priority should be upon. There's always a danger, always a temptation... To focus on the outward and think that if the outward is just right, God's name is honored. But it's the inward that must be there for God's name to be honored. So in this connection, there's one thing I want to challenge us to think about a little bit. Do we have certain practices that we maybe sometimes think automatically prevent us from being irreverent to God? Or automatically ensure reverence to God? Just one example. Our custom of how we address God in prayer using the pronouns thee and thou. 
Now, this practice is neither good nor bad in it of itself, because God's word contains no command concerning what pronoun to use. And there's no inherent holiness in an archaic pronoun over a modern pronoun. A pronoun is a pronoun. It's the heart using the words. A heart united to fear God's name that the focus ought to be. Now, the reasoning behind using thee and thou in our prayers is that this is a way to show reverence to God. And it does, if our heart is behind it. That's that's a good practice if we do it thoughtfully from the heart. But there are dangers to avoid here that we must be aware of. We mustn't think that just because we say thee or thou, our prayers are automatically reverent. Nor must we think that if someone doesn't use thee or thou, that their prayer is irreverent. Reverence isn't in a pronoun. Reverence is a matter of the heart. Behind the use of whichever pronoun a person uses to address God. And so we must not think highly of our prayers just because we use thee and thou. Nor must we look down on another Christian who uses you and your. There's no difference in the word itself. The heart. The heart united to fear God's name. What's the heart reason behind the words we speak? That's what's important to see. This means that Whatever pronoun you use is a legitimate way to pray and should be acceptable, provided the heart behind it is united to fear God's name. And so the point here is, whatever our custom may be, whatever our practice is, let it be from the heart. And let not the mere form be given such a place that we think the form itself is what shows reverence. And that any other form or any other way of doing it is automatically irreverent. That's not the case. That's not the case. And there may be different believers within one congregation who have different practices and different customs on something like this. And that's okay. Let our hearts be united to fear. God's name. But now we must get to the second matter to touch upon in connection with the third commandment, and that is the honoring of God's name in our deeds. The third commandment covers much more ground than just our words, but also our deeds. That's how question and answer 99 ends. We are to worship and glorify God in all our words and works. And works. The third commandment is not only concerned about what is said of God's name, but about what is done in God's name also. And that's crucial for us to understand as we take the third commandment and apply it to our own lives. If you are a Christian, absolutely everything you do says something about God's name. If you are a Christian, God's name is written upon you. It's written in your heart. God's name is the banner that is flying above your head everywhere you go and in everything that you do. 
After all, God's grace in Jesus Christ has made you His child and incorporated you into His family. And as a Christian, you bear the family name of your Father. And as His child, everything you do is a word that says something about your Father's name. And that's the truth that the third commandment needs to press upon your heart and mine. Once again, if all we think about in connection with the third commandment is avoiding certain bad words, then we haven't gotten more than a millimeter beneath the surface of the third commandment. It's so much deeper. It addresses our heart towards God. It addresses our whole life. Our whole life. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 2 that Christians are an epistle. He says, ye are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read of all men. So you can think of it this way. A big book. The title of that book is The Life of God's Redeemed Saints in the Midst of This World. And in this thick book there is a chapter with your name on top of it. And now you open that big book to the chapter with your name on top of it. And what do people read there? What do people read there? What people read there, what does it say about God and His name? Do we live in a way that gives our Father a bad name? Or a good name? Is His grace reflected in us as a mirror? Or does our lifestyle distort the image of Christ? You see, if our life is as a mirror that reflects and even magnifies the grace and the beauty of God, then our life is a word, an epistle that honors the name of God. But if our lifestyle distorts that image, we are taking God's name in vain. By the way we live. By the way we conduct ourselves. A couple of biblical examples a moment. David's sin against Bathsheba and Uriah. Nathan said this to David in 2 Samuel 12 verse 14. Howbeit, because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. What David did, his horrible sins against Bathsheba and Uriah, became an occasion for others to revile God because David did it as a Christian. More than that, as the king over the Old Testament church. God's name was above his crown. And when David not only sullied his own name and threw his own crown into the dirt by his sins, but he dragged God's name down with him. 
Another example is the Apostle Paul's instruction in Romans 2 verses 21 through 24 where he addresses the the ever-present danger of religious hypocrisy. Of saying one thing and doing another. Of preaching stridently one thing and pointing the finger at others, but using a much milder standard with myself and even engaging in some of the same sins that I condemn in others. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 2, starting at verse 21, Thou therefore which teachest another, teachest thou not thyself? Thou that preachest a man should not steal, dost thou steal? Thou that sayest a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? Thou that abhorrest idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? Thou that makest thy boast of the law, through breaking the law dishonorest thou God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you as it is written. The third commandment calls us with all our hearts to live in such a way that brings honor to God's name rather than dishonor. And what a motive we have for that. This is our God. Not just our creator, but our redeemer who shed the blood of Jesus Christ to have us for his children. To bestow upon us the inheritance of sons and daughters. To give us a new life. Now with that life. With that life. Honor, honor his name. What a powerful motive to fight against sin in our lives, isn't it? Living in sin as a Christian, what does that say about God's name? Committing sin in the name of God or using God's name or some part of God's truth to justify or excuse my sinful behavior. What does that say about God's name? Is my life a doxology to God? If I conduct myself in pride and lift myself up over my neighbor... If I don't practice what I preach, if I say truth but I don't walk in the truth, what am I doing? Among other things, I'm taking the name of the Lord in vain. I'm giving my Father, my Christ, a bad name because I say, God is so good. God is gracious. God saves. God is sovereign. And then I openly deny it in my walk. And everyone who looks says, that's what this God is like? That's what this God's gospel does? That's the fruit it bears? In word and in deed. And so now, now we're Commandment pushes us back to the cross, doesn't it? And we have to go there because we search our lives, and when we when we apply the third commandment in this way, we see oh how often I stumble and fail. How often my life is a broken mirror 
distorting the image of Christ. That humbling is good. Let us cast ourselves at the feet of the cross. Let us see wherever in word or in deed we do not honor God's name the way we ought. Let us confess those sins before the throne of grace. Keeping in our minds the words of 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. What a promise. Bowing at the cross, confess our faults and our sins and we look up to our Savior whose perfect sacrifice is the covering, whose perfect righteousness is imputed to us, freely of grace, received by faith. What a Christ we have. What a Savior. Look at what He has done. Look at His perfect life of obedience. The one who was reviled and scorned, but never reviled back again, who died to pay for our sins, who merited a new life for us, who gives us the privilege now. The privilege. Of bearing God's name in the world. What a wonder that is. God is pleased to have us bear his name. Even though we are still sinners. And even though we still by our words and deeds. Sometimes throw God's name in the mud. God wants his name fixed upon us. So great is his love for his people in Christ. He says, you are mine. I claim you. And despite the dishonor you bring to me by your sins, I am glorified in you. And I will be glorified in your salvation. Let's honor his name. His name which is above every other name. Teach me thy way, O Lord. I will walk in thy truth. Unite my heart to fear thy name. Amen. Father in heaven, grant that this commandment may sink into our hearts, that it may search out our hearts and show to us Whatever hidden ways or yet unseen ways we might walk contrary to this commandment. Help us to be a people who are not satisfied with just the surface. But want to get down into the depths of thy word. That we may see our sins more fully. Be brought to make confession more sincerely. And appreciate more fully the expansiveness of thy mercy and grace towards us in Christ. Strengthen us to hallow thy name and to lift it up in the pedestal of our hearts. And strengthen us to conform our life to thy word. So that as we bear thy name as a banner, our conduct as well as our speech might be an occasion not for others to revile thy name but to glorify thy name. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.